Hello and welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. Welcome to the show, everybody. It's Lindsay and Krista. We were just pumping ourselves up with our favorite motivational speaker. <laughs> Tony Robbins. <laughs> Move on who, over. Who else? <laughs> Lindsay showed me this account on Instagram. It's called Along Came Abby. Along Came Abby, A-B-B-Y. And it's this little girl. And it is... Unbelievable. She's just like, She's like a, five. a darling little, little being that plopped into this family. So she has older brothers and sisters. And I think she was a surprise. Uh-huh. And she's become just like, she's a wise, funny. Unbelievable. Beautiful perspective always. Yeah. And yeah, she just like kind of shares her her wisdom, her thoughts, reflections. Her parents are obviously in charge of her Instagram, but... I feel hilarious. <laughs> it's like just her. She's like, hey. <laughs> her parents are obviously signing off on this. Just so you know. So let's listen to the one we were just listening to. You know what? You're doing great, okay? Don't be upset. Look how far you've gone. You you keep you you kept going when it was so much. You don't care, okay? You don't care about if you're sad, okay? Doesn't matter. You just want to keep going, okay? Don't let sadness stop you from your happiness. Mm. <laughs> don't let sadness stop you from your happiness is iconic. Uh, that's a new that's a new brown tile post for me. <laughs> I'll be like Abby. I know. <laughs> it's like Martin Luther King Jr. I'm like Carl Jung, Kanye, Abby. <laughs> Some of the greats. You have to find accounts like that that are just yes. completely outside of your realm and your wheelhouse and your life and just like tap into that world that has nothing to do with you and just enjoy. And it just feels good. Like her account, I was <laughs> I was literally sobbing. Jay Shetty has the inspirational videos. I can't. And I, I re- you know, I love Jay Shetty. I love following him, but I don't find myself kind of like perusing like I was. But I was in such a a mood to just see joy, hope, like just deep emotional moments. (laughs) And it felt really good rather than like this weird numb feeling sometimes that I have when I'm scrolling. I'm like, oh, that moved me and I'm so glad. Oh, You know? (laughs) Yeah. You have to be in the mood. But I just sometimes, I'm very positive, but sometimes I go dark with that. I'm like, well, what if someone didn't pick up that dog at the pound? (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm like, what about the other Situ- mm-hmm. You know, I just, mm-hmm. uh, it gets a little too much. That's why my the my favorite place on earth, Stray Cat Alliance, where I got my two babies, mm-hmm. which is a shelter in LA that I donate to monthly, their account I had to mute. I love them. They call me all the time. I love them, but it was too much for me. Yeah, I can maybe have it later, but I, I would get into the world of, of literally like, this is what happens with your phone, the residue. So you go, and then you're seeing all these things, you're processing really hard emotions. And I would be in the world of like grandpa the cat and be like, oh my God, we have to fuck it. And I would be mm-hmm. unable to pull myself out of it yeah. and be back in reality. And it is crazy how much, how many different opportunities for emotions were presented with online. You know, it's like, you can really lose yourself oh, in yeah. how many opportunities there are. Yeah, I, I mean, I can imagine in one scroll, someone could be crying, laughing. Yes. <laughs> Jealous. Jealous. 
reflective, like horny. That's a, that's a lot of emotions. Horny. In- <laughs> Dude, I saw this one. Very of my, horny. It's funny because I've been going off about Megan Fox and MGK. Going off means like I've posted three times about them and mm-hmm. I said one word, but <laughs> there was, so it's on my explore page. There was like something, it was like a picture of them on vacation. And it was like from one of those like, Got those mm-hmm. pop culture sites and they're like this photo of Megan and Colton is all we need today. And I was like thinking if that's fucking all you need today, we have so many problems. <laughs> you don't know these people. Literally. At all. You will never know these people at all. And you saw a fake photo that's going to help you get through your day. I know. Jesus Christ. I feel like E! News Instagram does that a lot. Hey, you said it. <laughs> there goes our chance. There goes our chance. There goes our chance on Fuck. E! News. It was that exact thing where it was like, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a social media person that's like, hey, how do I, how do I fucking make this correlate? Mm-hmm. And use like social media terms. So I totally get it, you know, yes, part of, course. of the game. But I just was like, damn, who's actually looking at that? Like, this inspires me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? No, it freaks me out. Dude, no in Law of One, in the Law of One, the book that I love, my favorite spiritual text, the raw material, they talk a lot about negatively polarized beings. Sometimes they're very, very, very attractive. Mm. They talk about negatively polarized mm. entities and some, you know, in some cultures you'd call them demons, are the most attractive at Aesthetically. times. Aesthetically. Aesthetically. Mm, because wow. it's like part of the illusion. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm, that's why I'm good. I'm, I'm a good balance. <laughs> I'm okay, but not super. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's interesting about MGK and Megan Fox? This, I don't know if it's, you know, connected to Kardashians where a yes. Courtney and a Travis, a Kim and a yes. Pete. What do I want to say about it? It's an interesting... There's something that's being communicated through their choice in men. Well... Here we go. That's so after, if, this is after, this is almost 30 after dark <laughs> in what I have to say about this because it's very interesting. They're all tatted, very skinny. They're all like kind of like anti-cult, like, you know, kind of like punk yeah. vibes. Mm-hmm. And these are grown women. Like, I just don't. Yeah. I don't see it, but whatever. Yeah. I think the most important thing is this. These are the couples we're being fed. Yeah, Exactly. So exactly. this is like what is that's wh- what's filling our what feed. is the med- what is the media trying to convey to us by continuing to feed us images of these couples? What do they want us to feel about these couples? What do they want us to see? What is it? And I mean, with Megan Fox, I mean, are you kidding me? Her posts are fucking crazy. I don't know. Like, and then we drank each other's blood. I mean, the fact that then there was that article that you had posted about. Oh, yes. The one where they're like, so what happens when you drink Yo. your partner's blood? Pardon me? In the Dude, in the engagement post that Megan posts, it's always so fucking dramatic too. It's like two, two loners, two total outcasts. Under a banyan tree. Yeah, two total outcasts. <laughs> like you're the most popular people in pop culture. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you're literally so gorgeous. Like, oh, two loners. And then at the bottom, it says all this crazy stuff. And then it says, and then we drank each other's blood. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Okay so much to say about that. But then another media outlet was like, so this is what happens when you drink someone else's blood. Like normalizing it. Kind Very of. weird. I was like, what? It just was like, also like a stupid ass article. It's like, no one needs to. I like, know. Uh, maybe I know. people are Googling it. I don't know. Who knows? 
Are we but- kink shaming? <laughs> Am I kink shaming? <laughs> for all my cannibals out there, I'm sorry for kink shaming. But it is, you know, I think it is good to have that awareness of how certain, whether it's a news headline or an Instagram post makes you feel where it's like, huh, to me, this doesn't feel right. And why, you know yes. what I mean? Rather than just being like, oh, wow, you know, E! News is posting about Megan Fox and MGK a lot. Like that, that must be the relationship that I should aspire to. Uh, you know, it's yes. like, huh, okay, but how does this make me feel when I read about it, when I kind of see, you know, it's like having that autonomy and like sovereignty within yourself to be like, got it, but I am choosing not to like take the ride with them. Yes, 100%. You know, be on that emotional roller coaster. I do not consent. Those are spells. They put you yeah. on, Kardashians mostly put you under spells. Marketing spells. That's what I realized. I said this before, but with Kim... I was weirded out that every time I watched her, I was like, you're so beautiful. The whole time. I would just say, oh, she's so beautiful. She's so beautiful. I'm like, oh, that's a spell. Mm-hmm. I'm unsubscribing from the spell yeah. of this beauty. You know, that kind of yeah. beauty spell that is sort of happening. But yeah, man, they're just, just childish too. Like the whole, it just seems like a, a childish, undeveloped relationship. You know, when you're in high school and you're like, that you think toxicity is like love and yes. passion. Where you like bite each other and you're like, <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, what? <laughs> or no, you just like, you fucking like scream your head off and slam the phone down. Totally. And then you're like, it's because I love you so much. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally that where you're like, it's because we love each other so much. That's why we eat each other's like body parts. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that toxic. Oh, yeah. I obsession. Mean, yeah. Yeah, dude. Mine looked like, mine looked like, no, I'm staying on the phone with you. Oh my God. Oh my God. (laughs) And it'd be like three hours in and you're just like. (laughs) Dude, that feeling though, when like they would hang up first or you would hang up first and they wouldn't answer. Oh my my God. God. Lost the plot. I would go insane. I would be like, because you were literally could not regulate yourself. I know. You could not regulate your emotions. Holy shit. You were like so, so unwell. I mean, Yeah. (laughs) That was that. This happened to me at the point where I was with my. It was like my first serious boyfriend, senior year of high school. But we were going off to college, and it was kind of that time where you decide: Are we going to be be yes. together or not? And it was just like hours on the phone. I was just like, I, I could do too. this. I know, but I have to. I remember my boyfriend was in high school still, my freshman year of college, and I would make him call me every morning on his way to high school, <laughs> and it would be like six a.m. And like sometimes he wouldn't, and I would lose my mind. Was it a time change? No, same time zone. Because I I went to school close so we could be together. And you were up at 6 a.m. and wanted to call at 6 a.m. I would be. Like, I was like, whoa. It was fucking crazy. Wow. He dumped me, actually. (laughs) I I would dump you too. (laughs) I I literally look back. I'm like, I needed to be dumped. (laughs) Of course. And I was like, did your mom put you up to this? (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you're like that age, I was like, his mom's in his ear. Dude. Mother wound. His, I literally was like, his mom's like influencing Lame. him. She doesn't know. And his mom was like, hey, I don't think you should be yelled at like every morning at <laughs> six. <laughs> hey, I just have a little suggestion. She needs to be okay for like a day alone. <laughs> but I knew. Oh, holy I knew. moly. I was holy like, she's moly. influencing him. So. Too funny. Anyway. 
you're going to get a little bit of that from us every once in a while. Yes. A little social commentary. Yeah, a little <laughs> pop culture. That's our new podcast, Pop. Almost 30 Pop Culture Edition. I actually would love to do that because you could just be like, yo, you could kind of cut through like what's sure, happening. Sure, yes. And be like, y'all are like 10-year-olds. Today's episode. Thank you so much, first of all, for tuning into Almost 30. It's such a pleasure that we get to be with you every single week. We have episodes on Tuesdays and almost every Thursday. We have over 500, so you can dig into incredible episodes with some amazing people if you subscribe or just search for keywords and topics with Almost 30 and you can find some good ones. And also on our website, almost30.com, we have a blog which details like lots of great and some of the most popular episodes and then also has more information about us. Yes. Today's guest, we are super excited to welcome Manoj Dias. He spoke at camp and was a perfect way to bring everyone to a close. He was at the end of our favorite event and he is just incredibly powerful. His presence, I learned so much about presence yes. <laughs> while watching him, but he is currently the co-founder of Open, a mindful app that has uh, movement, meditation, breath work. It's quite the experience. I love this app. It's modern. The aesthetic is on point. The music is just super unique and I feel like like a perfect way to bring that mindfulness into your everyday at any point in the day. It was really refreshing to sit down with him and just peel back the layers on you know, his story, how he works with his own pain, how he really embraces yeah. his own pain, which was super beautiful to talk about. Um, we also talk about mindfulness in relationships, specifically in friendships, what this can look like, how it feels. We talked about embodiment and breath, how we can stay as present as possible. It's very hard to do, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it is a practice. Yeah, we talked about trauma too, trauma and healing. And I think this is really applicable for a lot of people that are listening where you're leaving an old life behind and moving towards a life that feels more aligned to you. And Manoj was able to transition from being an executive in advertising to founding a mindfulness startup and really being in his body with breathwork and meditation and you know fitness every day. So he was able to really transition into a more aligned life. So we talked a lot about that because I think breaking down the how is really important for those that are looking to make steps every day to live more aligned and more authentically. You can get a free month of open, which is really, really great. I use it a few times a week. What I'll do is use it for breath work or I'll use it for a quick meditation with Manoj when I need a little breath, when I need a little meditation inspiration. Mm -hmm. I like to be alone with myself for my meditations for the most part. But if I'm feeling uninspired by my meditations, I love to tap into their very, very diverse range of teachers. Yes, you can get 30 days totally free when you go to open-together.com slash almost 30. You can click on the link in our show notes or just type it in your browser, open-together.com slash almost 30. Use the code almost 30. You'll get 30 days totally free. And if you want, you can share this episode with a friend. That's how we've grown the show. It's always so nice to receive someone who's thinking about you if they're into meditation or mindfulness, or if they would love this conversation, you can send it straight via text to them. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you on the other side of this one. Enjoy. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, we want to share a little bit about the sponsors who support this episode. 
I don't know if you've heard, but there is a life edit mini challenge happening April 12th to the 16th. This challenge is inspired by the life edit, an almost 30 episode and program by Krista Williams, my co-host, and I am joining with you all. This is going to be a powerful recalibration. She is inviting you to let go of some shit, create more space in your life and align to your highest self starting today. And this is a really special lead into the full program coming soon, but this is a free challenge. So join nothing to lose everything to gain. You'll receive an email each day with tangible tips. You can integrate right now to up-level key areas of your life. And together we will all visualize who you want to be and take steps to get to where you want to be, how you want to feel digitally, physically, relationally, health-wise, financially. It is going to be so powerful. All you have to do is sign up with your email at lifeeditbykrista.com. That's lifeeditbykrista.com. I'm so excited to be sitting down with you in person. You know, we just spent some virtual time with you during camp and it was such a powerful powerful thing to virtually bring people into their bodies in the way that you did. So first of all, thank you because I thought ending camp on that note was super powerful. And watching the chat was hilarious. <laughs> the community was like, like literally crushing so hard. They're like, oh, like this is so interesting when it's said in an Australian accent. Like they were literally like, oh, what's going on here? Like, we were, were like, settle down and focus. Yes. Honestly, we're like ladies, like relax. Okay. It was like the first time they'd seen a man. They were like, <laughs> but they were really feeling it. And we met at Darlene's birthday, who's a friend of ours. And I remember we were talking about open and we were talking about working together. And then they mentioned your name. And then it was so weird that we sat next to each other at that dinner. And I was like, for Lindsay and I, with people that we have on the podcast, it has to be someone we've known or we met or we really appreciate their work. So it was so perfect that we got to spend time together because I was like, oh, this will be perfect. I'm so mm-hmm. glad to have you. And it felt really like fateful. We're excited to have you today. And I want to talk about so many different things. Your, you know, everything that brought you to the place that you are. But I would love to tell a little bit about the session that we did at camp, just for people that maybe we're not at camp or maybe want a refresher. What is it about being in the body that is so powerful? Because I feel like there's first the unawareness of not being in the body. I've spent a lot of time not in my body. And now that I'm in it, I know how powerful it is. But for anyone listening that doesn't feel like they're in their body, what is the benefit of actually working on being in your own body? Yeah. So I think the the place to begin is to acknowledge that the body isn't always safe for, for everyone, right? And for, for each of us, our relationship with our body is, it's different. You know, some of us have had experiences in early childhood. Some of us have had uh, experiences as adults or adolescents that take us away from being in the body. And inherently, it can be a very unsafe place if you've been taught that, if you've had experiences with your body. So working with the body and, and how I'll speak about it is one you should actually think about if it is the right one for you, if it is the right type of practice for you, if you have any sort of latent trauma, if you've had any sort of emotional wounding. But the, the benefit in that, the benefit in trying to reclaim our bodies and to reclaim um, our ownership and our sovereignty in ourselves is tremendous because culturally we, we don't actually exist in our body. And we can, we get a sense of that already, you know, and 
even in our conversation before, we were talking a little bit about this, where from the moment we wake up, our culture tells us we have to be on, right? We have to be thinking ahead. We have to be planning. We have to be strategizing, analyzing. And this naturally gives rise to things like anxiety and stress and worry. And this begins for many of us in the body, but then our interpretation of that is what causes us the suffering. You know, I shared a story about the two arrows in, in the camp event where it's a famous Buddhist uh, quote, a famous Buddhist story actually, where the Buddha talked about the two arrows we experience in life. The first arrow is the inevitable experience of pain that we'll all go through. And that pain can be anything from the loss of a loved one to a job ending, to a relationship ending, to broken bones or anything like that. And that's painful and that hurts us and it hurts us in our body. But at that moment, we shoot ourselves with a second arrow. And that second arrow is usually the one that we shoot from the head into the head. And that arrow is the story we tell ourselves about the experience. And we do that because over time, we've moved from our mammalian brains into the more prefrontal cortex of our brain, which is the newer regions of our brain, which are powerful. And this part of our brain makes sense of things. And that's how we navigate life, right? So we, we're trying to make sense of, okay, my relationship ended and... I'm going to shoot myself with this arrow and this arrow is going to tell me it's because I'm not beautiful or because I'm unlovable or because I deserve this or because I'm not good enough. And so what arrow do you think hurts the most? The second one, right? And the, the pain there exists in the body, but we don't want to touch that. We want to make sense of it. And so coming back into the body and you know, trying to, to be with the experience of the pain is the work that I'm really into and the work that I'm really passionate about. And so the way we do that is to first begin to touch our brokenheartedness. And one of my favorite teachers, Lama Rod Owens, who you should get eventually on your podcast, speaks a lot about coming into contact with our brokenheartedness. And for many of us, that's what we carry around. That's the wounding that we've got as children. That's the stories that we've been told. That's the story culture tells us, society tells us. So instead of touching that, we avoid it and we avoid it with, you know, drugs, alcohol, sex, social media, shopping in my case, like all these different things that just take us from that brokenheartedness, take us from the pain and the tending to the first arrow. And instead we try to make sense of it. So when we come home to it, it's first not comfortable, right? That's, it's very uncomfortable to be with anything unpleasant, but that's where the work lies. The work is to tend to that first arrow, to patch it up, to heal it. And then when we can heal it, we're more embodied through that experience. That experience doesn't become something we run away from. It becomes something that really adds to our depth of character, you know, adds to our wisdom, adds to our experience, and then we can take it with us into life. But for many of us, we, we run from that experience. And my work is really focused on coming back home to, to the body and experiencing life in a more embodied state. Mm. Can you share your experience of meeting your brokenheartedness and just, you know, where perhaps that originated and how you've begun to, or you have tended to it? Yeah, I think it, it really came to me when my mind shut down first. You know, I had a, a career in, in marketing and advertising, a very successful one from a, a young age. And I had a panic attack one day at work. And, and that really gave rise to, in retrospect, what was probably a breakdown 
you know, in front of all of my staff, in front of all of my superiors. And it started off as an anxiety attack. Over time, it built into full-blown anxiety, depression, got diagnosed with ADHD. The doctors and the psychologists and the psychiatrists all had conflicting ideas around what I was experiencing. And it became a, a, a moment in time where... I just had to be with the heartbreak of what that experience was instead of trying to understand and explain it away, you know? And I think we can get really good at trying to explain away our emotions and our feelings. And I very much tried to do that. You know, I tried to do ayahuasca ceremonies. I went to... <laughs> that uh, didn't cure you? you too? Yeah, yeah, literally. Yeah. Right. But that's the cure. <laughs> yeah, what do you mean it doesn't work? Um, but like, you know, I, I did all of these things. I saw Reiki healers. I, I went and took medication. I went and did yoga teacher trainings, all of these different things. But really what my body was asking me to do is to just sit with it and feel it. You know, and everything that I'd probably been running away from up until that moment was just there and it had to be felt and it had to be experienced and I had to go through the sadness and the darkness and the pain. And so it wasn't until I came into contact with a Buddhist meditation teacher that he actually turned me towards that. He turned me towards the pain. And one of the, the core tenets in, in Buddhism that really drew me back in, and I was raised in that tradition, but, you know, when I migrated to Australia, I didn't really come into contact with it as much. And when I started to turn around and, and face it, like there was so much pain there and sadness. And what that gave rise to was compassion. You know, it gave rise to this feeling that, wow, you're really in pain. You're really suffering. You know, the things that happened to you as a child or, you know, as a young immigrant moving into a pretty rough part of the world, like all of these things, they were really painful. And you, it's okay, like I see you and, and I feel you and it's okay to, to break down. And so coming into contact with that was very hard. And to be honest, you know, I'm still working through, through all of that. But that sense of fully accepting the brokenheartedness, fully accepting the fact that this moment sucks and it's okay that it sucks and that I don't need to, I don't need to make it anything apart from what it is right now took work and it took not only spiritual practice, but it took, you know, getting my body in shape and it took eating right and making sure I had a support system and a whole bunch of different things. And, and I don't know if that work ever finishes. I think we get more embodied through it. You know, I carry my pain with me and I, and I don't want to get rid of it. It's a little voice that reminds me that, you know, I'm human and it's actually quite, quite beautiful. Mm. The support system's interesting and something I've been thinking a lot about in my life and in our life. And I remember our coach, I think it was the beginning of last year, was like, you know, how are you going to be resourced this year? Like, who's your support team? And I was thinking about that. And it's really, you know, like if we're thinking about it from the level that usually attracts people where it's like, this is how you become an optimal leader, an optimal person in your career is having that support system. And especially for us as public figures, it's really, really important. But I remember for so long, I probably assumed I was resourced and supported because I had like two friends or something. But there's such a difference when you have an actual support system that really sees you and knows you and is able to go there with you and is able to hold you. And I'm so grateful because our community, our people, mostly healers and teachers themselves. So it's really easy to go there with them. But the support system has really changed my life. And now that I have it, I really can't imagine going without it. So for you, you know, what was your journey with having a support system? Like, were you kind of, when did you realize that you really needed it? And how was it helpful for your growth? 
I think it's, oh, I'll, let me speak for myself. It was, it was very hard for me to ask for help. Yes. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the, the place where I began. Like I felt like I was a burden that, you know, maybe people had too many things on their plate. And I think, you know, culturally as well for men, it's, it's hard for, for us to, to ask for help. But over time, like I learned the benefit in that. And there's actually a beautiful teaching called the Kalyanamita Sutta in, in Buddhism. And Kalyanamita refers to uh, a spiritual friend. And there's a beautiful story where Ananda, one of the uh, Buddha's foremost students, asked him one day, you know, where does friendship fit in in spiritual life, in spiritual practice? What part of it is, is this, you know, because I, I want to have friends. I love friends. And the Buddha said, it's not a part of the path. It is the path. And that really transformed how I experienced community because really in, in communities where we heal, right? Like we can do all the internal work, but we don't live in silos. We live in relationship to others. So in community and in friendship, it's really where we get to, to be ourselves and usually our most authentic selves. And as you were talking before, I, I kept on thinking like how many of us, even with our support systems, aren't in our bodies in that moment, right? And how, you know, if a friend tells you, hey, I'm going through this, so quickly we want to move into fixing that. You know, like, oh, this is what you should do. Hey, you should go and get a facial here or you should, you know, change your diet to become a vegan or you should do this. And and I've done that and I've been on the opposite side of that. And I've also been there when someone has actually just felt you felt you and, and held space for the breakdown and held space for the pain. And friendship and community is is the path you know, I can't emphasize that enough, is that no matter how much spiritual work that we do, it's actually useless if we don't actually engage the people around us, you know, in a way that will not only nourish ourselves, but nourish them. And with friendships in particular, I really love the the chapter in the book about mindfulness and friendships. And I feel like Krista and I, you know, in our friendship it's the it's the one relationship where we really get to practice that and know that we're practicing it and in real time kind of discover what works and what doesn't can you can you just expand upon that idea of mindfulness and friendships what that can look like and even what you've practiced in your own yeah um you know friendships are like anything in life we need to to work at it and I was reminded by this, I recently returned home to Australia after two years and so, so many of my friendships have changed, obviously two years in COVID, you know, a lot of things, everyone's getting married and all of a sudden everyone's got kids and you know, here I am <laughs> doing not those things. And so there's moments like that where you're like, I don't have anything in common with this person anymore. Like we've, we've split, like we're different. And I think that's part of the beauty of friendships is that they evolve you know, people evolve, people change. And some people be the people that you want to move forward in life with. And and that's okay as well. But if we look at cultivating this special kind of friendship, uh, you know, Kalyanamita, that's referred to as a spiritual friendship. And a spiritual friendship is someone where you can explore with, really. Someone who you can grow with, someone who you can see all parts of you and and allow them the same grace to, to see, to be seen. And I think that kind of work is deeply transformational, but it also takes a lot of internal work. And this is where the internal and the external kind of intersect, is if I allow myself to feel what I'm feeling, to go through these emotions, to be able to uh, explore my pain, then I can hold that space for someone else. And through that, we, we build connection. And 
you know, I'm part of this uh, men's group where we talk about uh, vulnerability and uh, community and vulnerability equals connection. And I think the most connected I've felt to someone else is when I can actually really see them. And that takes a lot of courage to do that. So it's something that we cultivate over time, right? It's something that we nurture and it's also something that we cull if it's not, you know, beneficial to either party. That men's group is so interesting. So in it, because I'm sure there's our community, mostly people identify as women. So in that, I guess I'd be curious, like to get a peek behind the curtains, what is some of the conversation that's had with men in their resistance to being vulnerable or their fears or what's happening in those brains? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, men, there's a lot of pain within that. And, And the pain that men feel expresses itself in not so healthy ways. You know, it generally expresses itself as causing and inflicting pain on women and, and those that identify as, as women. And that's really the basis of this work is if more men know how to navigate their emotions, which I think is the most fundamental skill you can teach a child these days, is how can you navigate your emotions, then some of these things we can mitigate. So, you know, some of the work that we do is to first talk about what, what's occurring for us. And we do three rounds. The first one is, you know, what are we feeling in our body today? And what we're feeling in our body is like, you know, coming back to this theme of, of embodiment is so potent and powerful because men don't know how to identify what they're feeling in their body. Again, you know, a lot of us are so disconnected from the neck up to our body that the moment we sense something, we're going straight into reaction mode, right? Instead of just being, oh, okay, I feel this tightness in my chest and then someone in the group might invite him to stay there like okay stay with it for a moment just breathe like what is that what's underneath that and that's where we start to get curious about oh okay there's actually sadness underneath that anger where's that sadness coming from and so the men in this group will always ask questions there's no advice giving really the invitation is to actually tap into my own innate wisdom. And so from that, we'll set like a working statement at the end of each each session. And so, you know, it might be, I'm going to have a very difficult conversation with my wife this week and, and I'm going to be honest with her or I'm going to sit here and I'm going to process this anger or pain. But it is, it is really powerful, potent work and mm-hmm. it's really beautiful and I'm, yeah, very grateful. Yeah, I'm excited for that to be a little bit more mainstream or normalized because I feel like as women, we have bountiful communities that we can join, you know, and feel comfortable to be vulnerable and share. I also feel like there's judgment from women about Mm. that. So it's like- Two men or two men? Yes, like taking responsibility for, because I do feel like there's women that would see that as less than, or they'd see that like a man in his emotions feeling his emotions. There's also judgment from some women about that too. Yeah, I think this is the cultural narrative that we're all kind of existing under is that emotions are bad and then Mm -hmm. certain emotions are good and certain emotions are bad. You know, wellness culture, (laughs) we were talking about that before, it's always talking about happiness, joy, gratitude. And I'm not really interested in that. I want to get to know my pain. You know, I want to get to know my sadness. I want to get to know my anger because those, the essence of those emotions are much more powerful for me, you know, and and they, they free me. I might not be happy for a moment, but I'll be free. And I want to free myself from suffering. And that's really the work of of Buddhist meditation and mindfulness is to be free from suffering so we can awaken our own innate wisdom and move through life more skillfully without causing harm to women, without causing harm to anyone else. 
We hope you're enjoying this conversation. We're going to take a few moments to share brands with you that we love and who support this show. There is nothing I love more than taking a nice magnesium at the end of my day. And the way that I get it is through Array. I'm such a huge fan of their founders, of their products, of their mission, of their vibe, of their style. Sif is incredible. We were just on her podcast and we've been huge fans of their products for a long time. I love their Calm product. It lowers your cortisol and helps me end the day. Yeah, what I love is that they are blending herbs and minerals and vitamins. So all just natural things into a supplement that really help to support you as a woman. So Calm is amazing. I take it at the end of every single day. I also take their bloat formula, which works so well and so quickly. It works within an hour. And that's kind of the deal at Array. They make fast acting products that use the most potent part of plants and herbs. The bloat formula I love. It's a blend of five herbs and a fruit-based digestive enzyme. And it targets every possible cause for bloating. So you feel relief super, super quick. So I would love for you to check out Array. I'm sure you've seen them on Instagram. I feel like everyone is taking Array. So cool to see. Go to Array.com, A-R-R-A-E.com. Use the code ALMOST30 for 10% off first-time purchases or 25% off the first month of your subscription. That's A-R-R-A-E.com. Use the code ALMOST30 for 10% off your first-time purchase or 25% off your first month subscription. The way that I end my day and take off my makeup is using Milk and Honey Cleansing Balm. It is the best. It's like this really thick, beautiful product that melts away dirt, excess oil, impurities, and transform into like a milky cleanser that rinses everything off. I love it. I am obsessed with milk and honey products. Not only do they smell amazing, I trust their ingredients and they really do work. I'm traveling a lot, so I'm using the Hydrating Rose Mist. And this lightly rose-infused facial mist helps to enhance just like the glowiness of your skin. It has organic aloe vera leaf juice, rose extracts, and powerful antioxidants. So this is really hydrating, really calming. Sometimes when I travel, my skin's all funky, but this helps to soothe it. And what I love about Milk and Honey is that they also have spas. So they have a lot of spas in Austin, in Los Angeles. I go to the one in Culver City in Brentwood. They're incredible. Their staff is super, super kind. They use Milk and Honey products and they have a bunch of incredible brands. So check out their spas and their products Mm -hmm. if you're not in one of their cities. Yeah, get a massage, body treatment, facial, hydrofacial, med spa. They got it all. Almost 30 listeners can enjoy 20% off your next order at milkandhoney.com and 20% off your first spa spa service at any Milk and Honey location with code ALMOST30. That's major. Milk and Honey Spa. Spell it out. MilkandHoneySpa.com to find a location near you and to grab some of our favorite products. Again, the code is ALMOST30 for 20% off your next order at Milk and Honey or 20% off your first spa service. Just on the note, of children and emotions that you mentioned, because I agree. I think that is just of utmost importance. And I'm curious how that has really become experienced in your relationship with your daughter. And did you always have that understanding or was it trial by error? I would love to just learn a little bit more about that, that journey with her. 
I think any parent will tell you it's it's trial by error. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I was I was nineteen when when mm. I had my daughter, and and I I'm sure like I've traumatized her in many different ways, uh, mainly through my lack of awareness and, and my lack of understanding and my lack of processing my own emotions. You know, which which kids naturally absorb. You know, she's a, a young woman now; she just turned twenty, and and she's out there in the world, and and she's trying to understand herself, her place, and also this crazy world that we live in, which is. And she turned 18 during COVID. So, you know, she hasn't been able to go out. And there's a whole lot of emotions going there and, and I'm sure anxiety and, and all those are there as well. So in terms of how we relate to each other, I've always offered her a space to just feel what she's feeling. And I think my, my natural inclination is to give space for people to make mistakes because my parents are very different. They were very strict. You know, they just didn't let me do anything. And it was beautiful and wonderful, but it also caused me a lot of pain because I felt like I couldn't experience life myself. And also had no one to speak to about that. So with Taylor, it's different. Like Taylor has all the tools. I've given her the tools. Like I've taught her how to meditate. I've you know, taught her how to do yoga. I've created resourcing around her, like therapists and friends in the industry and all of that. And now it's up to her to, to navigate that. And, you know, dad will always be there, of course. And mom will always be there, of course. But... There's also some agency she has, and I think that empowers her. You know, I don't know if it'll work for every child, but I, I love the idea of giving the tools and then saying, okay, now let's let's see what you got. Yeah, there there is a, I can imagine like a self-practice as a parent too, that you you notice that like perhaps instinct, primal instinct to protect and want to control. I think similarly, my parents were definitely more protective rather than, okay, we've done what we can and let's see how you how you navigate. It was more like controls as much as we can for as long as we can. But I can imagine the internal practice of allowing, of letting go is a powerful one every single day. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really that, right? It's letting yeah. go and, and recognizing that we can't control anyone, let alone mm-hmm. our kids. There's um, actually a, another beautiful quote in, in the Buddhist lexicon about walking, walking the world and essentially the world is on fire. And I'm going to paraphrase this and butcher this whole story, but the, the Buddha once said, instead of trying to avoid all these hot coals that are on the floor, why don't you take some leather and like wrap your feet around it, right? So the analogy there is that we can spend our whole life trying to protect our kids or protect ourselves and avoid situations that might be dangerous or we can equip ourselves with the leather and the leather in this case would be the wisdom to know that okay pain is inevitable suffering is optional pain will also end at some point i have resources i have tools i can navigate this moment so i don't know mm-hmm. if my style of parenting is is the best but i think you know we we also attempt to do the best that we can and, and there's a letting go and like you said in that experience as well I think that's good advice for now too, you know, because I think there's such a deep avoidance of pain. And I realized that across the past couple of years, I'm like, wow, we will do anything to avoid pain. You know, a dear friend of ours had a passing in the family and the way in which involved like a prescription that was sort of the avoidance of pain, but then made the passing really painful and then, you know, in the past couple of years, we will just really do anything to not fall victim to any sort of feeling or any sort of pain. And it's really just shortchanging like the power that we have within painful moments. And not that I'm saying what they did was wrong or right, but I just found it interesting that, you know, as we reach these pinnacles and these really important periods, 
how scared we are to really just feel it all. And we feel like we're going to die and we feel like we won't make it or we feel like we can't do it. And I wonder if it's with children, you know, how we could help them to feel more pain, but then still be a parent, which is seeing your child be in pain is probably the hardest thing in the whole world. So it's like, how do you balance knowing that there is pain in life and that's normal to experience, but still being in relationship, I guess, with your child? And I think it's actually being in relationship with the pain that actually transforms that, you know? And how can we transform anything if we don't get close to it? And I look at anger as being something that I've had to work with intentionally throughout my life. Thanks, Dad, for for teaching me that. And I always thought anger was such a bad thing, and and I scared myself. So anytime I would remotely get angry, angry and I'd feel it in my body, I would just go into a whole narrative around, oh, I don't want to be around my dad. Like, I don't want to be like him and this is bad and people are going to suffer and and all of this. And that actually was taking away a lot of power and and it affected relationships as an example where I wouldn't express myself, you know, and and because I was scared of that anger and I thought that anger was just tied to pain. But anger is actually tremendously useful, right? Anger is such a motivator. Anger when harnessed and rage when harnessed can actually motivate us. It can change worlds. Like, you know, we've seen civil unrest and we've seen like social justice movements begin with with anger. And when we can harness the power of that, it's really potent and really transformative. But as you say, we don't have a good relationship with pain and we don't have a good relationship with things that are unpleasant. And that's a byproduct of our culture. And it's up to us first to transform and then begin to transform the people that we come into contact with, like our kids, and tell them, hey, it's okay for you to express something if you don't like it. It's okay. Let's work on how you deliver that. You know, let's work on how that expression meets the world. But to shut down emotions in general, really, we're doing a disservice to them. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm curious for both of you, since you had controlling situations growing up, like your parents were very controlling. When you're that young, you then assume that being controlled is love and being in the narrative of being controlled is how you receive and how you experience love. How have you gotten out of that narrative? Because I think that's been interesting across the past couple of years where I'm like, oh, people don't really know what love is. They have different assumptions of what love is, where it's controlling, it's jealous, it's resentful, it's all these different emotions that our brains are taught as young age is love. How have you gone um, from moving out of that feeling that control is love to understanding what love actually is? Oh, wow. What a beautiful question. (laughs) I think we continue to understand what love is, right? And there are different moments in our life where love means something completely different. Love for me when I was a child was just attention. I just wanted attention, right? And having never got it, when I was in my teenage years, the moment someone showed attention, love is like, oh, this is love, right? And that continues to evolve and continues to change. And, you know, maybe at this point of life where I'm at now, I think of love as space and, and this quality of spaciousness where things can arise and things can be contained and things can be held. And in spaciousness, like anger can arise, you know, jealousy can arise and moments where we feel we don't love can also arise. And it's all okay. You know, we don't have to just think of the good, beautiful things. It's like love is scary and love is ugly. At least the kind of love that I want to be a part of, right? I want to feel the the full human experience of what love has to offer. And there's also a tenderness to that. 
And I think that the tenderness part is what I really had to work on, especially as a man, because I didn't experience a lot of tenderness, you know, growing up. It wasn't until like I was in my teenage years and I met my teacher eventually that I started to understand compassion, especially compassion from a man, which was really transformational for me. And now to infuse that tenderness with this quality of spaciousness is is my expression of love. And, and it's what I hope to, to feel, you know, in, in however way I I can. Yeah, and I think in redefining what you experienced as a child, like in this case, you know, having parents who were, yeah, just super protective and at times controlling out of what, you know, they saw as love. For me, it's helped as an adult to understand why and where that stems from in their own lives. So it's asking questions, it's learning more about their upbringing, understanding, you know, that there is a certain amount of resources and capacity for them to dig in there. And we, I think our generation has so many resources to do that and are encouraged to do that. So it's just brought a lot of compassion. And then when I notice how I attract or seek the home I'm used to from growing up, that that feeling of comfort and home, whether it's like dysfunctional or not, I, I do have compassion for that part of me because yeah, that was that was home, you know? And it's also really helpful for me to like bring this into conversation with a friend, with a partner. Like, you know, this is kind of how it was when I was growing up and this feels comfortable to me to seek validation in this way. But I also am aware that it's not always something that is in my best interest of expression and, you know, fully feeling. So I would love, you know, to kind of work together on this when this does come up. So I think it's always this invitation to have more compassion for self, have more compassion for our parents and just have more compassion for the process. Because like you said, it, you're always discovering what love is in that way. Mm. My parents were perfect, so yeah, figured I'd ask you guys, <laughs> let everyone know. <laughs> let everyone know so I could just enjoy <laughs> reflecting on my perfect, perfect parents. I guess when, when you were when you were going through this kind of like awakening of sorts that you had where you had, and it's interesting because my awakening happened with anxiety and depression that was so crippling as well that I was like, I think I'm good on life. I was like, I think this if this is it, I'm good. And that led me on the path you know, of spirituality and of this like place where I am now, obviously it took many, many years, but you're leaving this old life behind where you're a marketing executive, you're making a lot of money, you have this identity and your ego is is that, you know, this person that you'd created. For anyone listening, there's a lot of people that want to go on their path to a deeper spirituality, to a mindful, a more mindful place, to a more authentic and creative place. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to leave your old life behind, leave old relationships behind? It was hard. It was really hard. I think the the spiritual path, depending on to what depth you end up following it, always will present moments like this, you know, like crossroad moments where it's like, well, do you want to go down this path or do you want to go down your old life? And whether that's friendships, whether that's, you know, the things that you used to like, the places that you used to go, they're they're always going to be there. For me, I got to a stage where my mind was a very different mind to the one I experienced previously. You know, I was free from a lot of my anxiety and, and not that it doesn't come back from time to time, but I was very clear on on the path that I wanted to take. And I had an innate knowing that we don't get many chances to, to do this and I can keep 
rolling around in samsara, as we call it, you know, continuously going through this, you know, cycle of suffering, or I now had a path that could actually take me out of it. And I didn't want to lose that opportunity. And so when I started to, you know, change friendship groups or when I didn't go out every single weekend and when I stopped drinking and things like that, there was a lot of confusion, you know, especially especially my male friend group. But I think over time, what they started to see was how I had changed, how I was more present with them, how I cared more for them, how I cared for myself more. And I, over time, I think the biggest transformation has been my dad. Like my dad, you know, has slowly started to read my book and books similar to mine and started to meditate and, and you know, tell me how proud he is. And I don't think that would have actually happened if he hadn't seen a model for that, you know? And I think that's what each of us can become. We can be a model for transformation where we don't have to be loud about it and tell people, hey, yo, come and do this, what I'm doing. It's like, I'm just living my life and it's a message that you can also do the same thing. You know, there is a way out for you as well. Mm. How beautiful that your dad has seen you as a, a model in that way. I've, I think about that often where, you know, we, or I, I'll speak for myself, where I felt like a little bit resentful and, you know, that teenager that's just like, oh, you should have taught me that. You should have taught me about finances. You should have taught me about... And it's like, oh, maybe part of what this is all about is us also teaching our parents so much, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's that intergenerational healing mm-hmm. right there. You know, you heal yourself. You, you heal so many more pe- people yeah. all around you. Ayahuasca. Seven <laughs> generations. <laughs> right. That's in the ceremony. They're like, it's going to heal seven generations. <laughs> It's like, okay. <laughs> it's funny that your parents validate you when you don't need it. They're like, I'm really proud of you. You're like, five years ago, this would have been amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like at this point, I mean, it's always, it's always nice. Yeah. I have to say. I'm, it's like you don't need it, but it's nice. Yeah. 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 I mean, there is a sweetness in that and a tenderness in yes. that as well. And, you know, I think back to, I don't know about your parents, but like, you know, my parents didn't have the resources and tools that we have access mm-hmm. to podcasts like this, oh, you know, I know. teachers. I know. And, and they just had to make do with what they had to make do with, especially when there's cultural barriers too, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think we're all just trying to do the best that we can. And and over time, we heal the the pain that was caused to us. And then that spawns a beautiful relationship from there. What about drinking? I'd love to talk about drinking because I feel like it's... In, I stopped drinking in, when I was 26 until like 30 something. I was doing drugs too, but <laughs> I was doing drugs instead. But anyways, it was profound for me and no one else was not drinking. And I feel like now it's in the zeitgeist where people are most, more sober curious, whether it's not drinking or you know, no sort of altering anything. How profound was not drinking for you? Maybe not as profound as not doing drugs. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's uh, true. Right. I had my own profound experiences. Okay. Right. Yeah. No, I mean I did I did as well, you know, when yes. I was when I was young. And I think that was always for me, like drugs became a search. Alcohol became yes. a search for something. I didn't know what it was, what that search was. And, you know, in retrospect, probably connection. I wanted to feel connected to other people and and you know, that was like a barrier I was able to move through once I took alcohol or drugs, you know. And then over time, you realize you don't need those things. And, and the quality of connection isn't actually the kind of connection you're truly searching for anyway. And so, you know, I don't, I don't have an issue with drinking. Like I don't, I'm not sitting there saying, hey, don't drink. And, and I just ha- think it's, there are wiser choices you can make. And, and I've decided to take a choice where I will rarely have a drink. And, and if I do, I really enjoy it, you know, and, and 
I'm not, you know, out till five, six in the morning. But there's a, a moment of real joy and, and enjoyment in that moment, but there's not an attachment to that. And I know it's not something I don't need in order to feel what I'm really trying to feel. So it's, it's something that I just learned over time doesn't suit my lifestyle, but, you know, it suits other people and, and that's great. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to go back to the, the friendship piece because I can imagine, like, you've obviously changed so much. I'm thinking about our audience and I feel like we get a lot of messages about, you know, just kind of like evolving and having to have a conversation where you really care about someone, but there seems to be some misalignment in the relationship. And so how did you specifically discern like what relationships were kind of worth Mm. the conversation and kind of effort to tend to them as like this evolved person. Yeah, th- I'm feeling a little bit awkward as you keep referring to me as an evolved person, but like- <laughs> Well, <laughs> this loser. So yeah. I mean, but we're all evolving, but I, I guess what I'm I'm highlighting is that contrast between like, it almost seems like being in your other career- and how you were speaking to the anger and just different habits. Mm. It's like, it feels like a 180 to me in the most beautiful way. Yeah. I mean, I I don't ever really throw someone out of my life. Mm. That's one thing. And the way I liken it is like, I don't throw someone out of my heart, actually. Like they're they're always there and I'll always have a, a soft spot and a tenderness for them. But the level of attention and the level of time that I can give someone is is limited based on the choices they're making or, or our relationship. I do think we all have the capacity to change and to transform and to develop a different level of awareness you know, to, to all, our old selves. So in that respect, I'm always open to, to people changing and evolving. I think there's something within ourselves that we need to kind of reconcile and, and heal in that moment as well. It's that what is the desire to throw someone out of our life? Where is that coming from? Can we open more compassion and can we try and mend those things? And the other side of compassion is like, hey, maybe I do need to cut this relationship because I care about myself as much, mm-hmm. you know? So it's it's nuanced and I, it's not probably an easy answer as to how do we do this? I think it depends how much we can hold. You know, what are we willing to to bear? And my favorite contemporary philosopher is Alain Dubaton and he talks about in the context of relationships is that whenever you engage in any relationship, you're going to suffer. Like there's going to be a certain level of suffering, specifically in romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. I think what we need to decide is how much suffering are we willing to experience? Sure. Yeah, I love that. Not throwing someone out of your heart. Hmm. That resonates. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, we want to share a little bit about the sponsors who support this episode. I have recommended this app to more people than I've recommended any other app. And y'all, we got a lot of apps on our phones. Am I right? This is going to be your favorite one to date. It's called Truebill. Truebill, baby. I actually had a friend text me the other day who I recommended Truebill to. And she was like, oh my God. God. 
the amount of subscriptions that I didn't know I still had was nauseating and I feel so much better because Truebill unsubscribed me from all of them literally with just a few clicks. So if you don't know what Truebill is, it's the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. I always forget about my subscriptions. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. And because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, have you noticed that? Truebill makes it incredibly simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. I did this one day with all of my unwanted subscriptions. I was like, yep, take care of it for me. And they did it. It was so easy. Your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel those unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. I love it so much. It saved me so much money, so much time, and so much like what I didn't realize was like space in my brain and in my energetic field. I didn't realize subscriptions took up my energetic field. They do. Uh, Truebill has over 2 million users and helps save them over $100 million, which is absolutely amazing. So if you're looking for an incredible financial app, please, please, please download Truebill. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at truebill.com slash almost 30. Do it right now. Truebill, T-R-U-E-B-I-L-L.com slash almost 30. Go right now. You won't be sorry. Truebill.com slash almost 30. It could save you hundreds a year. Truebill.com slash almost 30. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And one of the things I have been leveraging BetterHelp for has been couples therapy. So BetterHelp not only offers individual therapy, but it also offers teen therapy and for couples. So if you feel like you and your partner could use some support in in creating more intimacy and creating more trust and creating more passion and helping to understand each other more and helping to navigate through any issues or fights or struggles, I highly suggest using better help, which is super affordable therapy to support you and your partner. Yeah. I mean, I could not recommend therapy enough. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's very customizable and it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. It's stressful times, you know, and we don't realize how many symptoms stress can cause, whether it's physical symptoms like digestive issues and teeth grinding. You can even just be like doom scrolling on your phone. Uh, That's a way sometimes I numb out when I'm stressed. So therapy has really helped in all the ways and I can't wait for you to try BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Almost 30 listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash almost 30. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash almost 30 for 10% off your first month. I want to actually learn more about Buddhist teachings and principles. What are some of your favorite, like the most powerful ones that have transformed your life? Wow. There's a lot, but I think that the major one has been wisdom and compassion and how they really are the, are the catalyst for us to, to live the life that we probably all dream of to some extent. Compassion is, has been the most transformative experience of my life, the most transformative quality, I should say. The willingness in this context, not just to empathize, but to suffer with, which is really the Latin translation for it, right? To suffer with. And co- compassion in the Buddhist context is 
first feeling what someone else is feeling and then being motivated to help them suffer less. And I think, again, culturally, we haven't been conditioned to do that. It's very competitive, like the world we live in. It's very much about the individual. Interconnection, we don't really speak about. We don't speak about the fact that the anxiety that I may feel, you've probably felt it at some point in your life. The loss that I've gone through at some point in your life, you'll probably go through. And at that moment, the natural arising is compassion, right? Because we know what we feel in that moment. We know what it's like to lose someone that we care about. So when we can tap into that within us, then compassion arises for when someone else goes through that as well. And compassion has many different expressions. Like I said, there's a teaching called the fierce sword of compassion. And this form of compassion is where we cut things down that you know are not uh, serving our, our highest good or highest awareness. And even developing that has been profound. Like, hey, this friendship is actually not good. Like it's actually really, really hard and difficult. With compassion, I need to express how I feel to them. And as someone that kind of retracts from confrontational experiences, that's been tremendously beneficial. And then taking on the learning of wisdom, which I think, you know, contemporary mindfulness practice doesn't really speak about. We speak about stress relief. We speak about good vibes. We speak about all these other things. But wisdom is really the, the fruit of our practice. Wisdom is this ability and this skill of our mind to know that, hey, this decision, if I make it, will lead me towards suffering. This decision, if I make it, will lead me towards more happiness. And over time, we start to choose the actions and the decisions that lead towards more happiness and less often we'll choose the ones that are self-destructive and cause us suffering. And that's wisdom, right? That's that's this thing that people talk about that we get with age because, you know, we get mature and we learn things, but it's something that we can cultivate. Mm -hmm. And so I think those two teachings have been really, really transformational for me. Mm. On the compassion piece, I wonder how you feel about this because I feel like and this might be a personal antidote for myself, but I feel like I've had to actually pull apart from feeling people's feelings and like that enmeshment sense where I would take on someone else's feelings. And I realized it wasn't serving either of us if we were both in the same energetics of what they were feeling. So if they were feeling pain or sorrow or grief, I would be in that same energy with them. And I didn't feel like it was serving them because then we're both in the energy rather than me holding a different or my own energy and having them be in their own experience. I guess, am I, am I understanding compassion wrong or is there like a different idea around compassion from a Buddhist perspective that actually says that it's good to be feeling what the other person is feeling? Yeah, I, I don't think it's an and or. Yeah. I, I think it's like the two truths can exist yeah. at that moment. And, and the truth is that you can feel what the other person's feeling and you can create some strong energetic boundaries with that person to protect yourself. Because in that moment, there's compassion for yourself and there's compassion for the other person. I do agree with you. Like there's moments where we drop down deep into the feeling sense of someone else's pain. And then there's also a moment where we have to hold that. And the holding of that is through wisdom, right? We can hold this and we know the wisdom is telling me that I need to support this person. And so just being in a, with them is probably not beneficial. And I can do that and still move them towards a place of not suffering or not going through the pain. I'd love to shift a little bit. would love to talk about open, but as kind of a little transition, just the relationship with technology, your phone, even being someone who people are looking to as whether it's a leader or, you know, eyes on you on social media. It's such an interesting thing that we've also navigated as well. But how have you come to a place of 
of right relationship with technology and more specifically phone and social media. I love that term, right relationship. You know, uh, we have similar terms that we have in, in Buddhism around right view or, or right mind, mindfulness. And so I think right relationship is, and I might steal that actually. Yeah, um, <laughs> take, take it. I probably stole, I don't, I don't know where I heard it, but I definitely, <laughs> it's not mine. <laughs> I, I think it comes with some experience. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first was on social media and first had a smartphone, I was wild. Like I looked, <laughs> I did like a bit of a cleanse of my social media like a year ago. And I was like, Yo, look at me doing all these topless like meditation photos. Like, whoa. <laughs> like, what the hell was I thinking? And I was like, this is so embarrassing. But I think, you know, who I don't think many of us probably knew like when we were yes. first getting into it, like what social media would become. And and so it comes with a bit of maturity. It comes with also really checking in with our body. Like I know when I'm using my phone too much, I feel like tension. Like my jaw will clench throughout the day. I'll feel a tightness in my chest. And so just paying attention to those things is usually a good trigger for me to get off the phone. And then when it comes to like social media, I think it's also really worthwhile considering how we're presenting ourselves to the world. Because yes, one version is topless photos and doing all that. And that's if that's your thing, it's completely fine. Like I don't, I personally don't have an issue with that. But I think we should ask, is this the message we want to convey to the world and how are other people going to respond to that? Like my world is meditation and spirituality and uh, there are sexy people doing that. It's really not my lane. Like, you know, it's not for me. And if I was to do that, I'd feel very inauthentic and it would feel weird and not me. So I tend to, to not do those sorts of things. But I also put a lot of time and energy and um, thought into what I post. And so I ask myself a series of questions like, is what I'm about to post true? Is what I'm about to post authentic? Am I just doing this for validation? Am I, who am I speaking to when I, when I post these things? And it's a whole process. But I think, I think the scariest thing is how addicted we all are to them. And, and I put myself firmly there. Like I, I use it way too much. But that's our work to, to untangle ourselves from those addictions. Judson Brewer actually talks about this. He's a really famous neuroscientist. Talks about how we're all addicted to something. Even if we think it's, you know, we don't have an alcohol addiction or something else. That, that's prevalent amongst all of us. And I think a phone is definitely one thing that I'm trying to break free from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just went on. I did like 30 days off of Instagram and yeah, it was, it was fascinating. I have an episode coming out about it, but it was just fascinating. One, how quickly when it was off my phone, I deleted it completely, how it was quite out of sight, out of mind, Mm. interestingly enough. And I, that made me happy, (laughs) you know, but when it was on the phone still in the first few days of the hiatus, I found myself on there without even knowing that I had grabbed my phone, opened the app and started scrolling. So it was just a very interesting study of myself. But I have hope for, you know, as we start to have these conversations around, you know, having that right relationship with social media, that I think there is an innate part of us that truly craves presence with another human being, not in a digital way or not on social media. And I truly think there's a part of us that craves being outside and and not documenting everything that we do. I do think that there is that part of us. So I think if we create the structures and yeah, it's like for me, I needed to delete it in order to experience that. So it's like having that structure and those expectations, I don't know, just gives you that glimpse of like, oh, 
I can experience this and this can be a part of my life. But, you know, follow the money. It's on social. <laughs> Hey, man. Follow the money. <laughs> you got a job to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it is. I know. I think I'd probably be like, uh, I always get worried with that stuff. I'm like, I'll probably, I would probably never go back. Yeah, you know, I'm like very I mean, all or very, very black or white. I'm all or nothing. <laughs> so I'd be like, mm, this is my new life. That, yeah. You know. I know. Well, I think, I mean, I see both sides of, I of what we're speaking about. I think right relationship for me is just balance. Yes. Right? It's it's coming back to this place where we don't feel mm-hmm. like we connect with people based on who they are on social media or we don't connect with people based on what they say or what they don't say. There is actually a sense that we can engage with that in a way and then we can engage with life in, in a meaningful way as well. And to remember that, remember what life was like before all of this, which is kind of scary for kids, right? Like they didn't grow up you know, where there was no social media, they've been born into it. So I still remember a time when, you know, I used to not be on my phone all the time. That's how I'll be controlling with my kids. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> the tech, technology stuff. Yeah. I know. I know. Sorry. Yeah, I would love to talk about Open. It's been a really beautiful experience. I find that the combination of aesthetic, the sound experience and obviously the just the offerings of breath work and movement and mindfulness and it feeling very cool. I say cool in the most like yeah, loving so. way. It's just it kind of transports you in a way that I haven't experienced before through an app. Would love to know, you know, just the origin story of how how this came to be. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for saying those beautiful mm-hmm. things. I think you know, as you were talking, like what I keep coming back to is, you know, art has a way of, of transporting us either away from where we are or deep into the experience of, of where we are. And so many of us are visual and, and auditory people, you know, like we hear beautiful things and it can take us somewhere. Or we see beautiful things and we can take us somewhere. And when we combine that with a depth of wisdom and, and teachings and a community, like as you guys know, like it's really a vehicle for change and a vehicle for transformation. You know, the origin story is is kind of crazy. Like I was actually fundraising for my own app and my own studio. In 2015, I opened A Space, which was at the time Australia's first drop-in meditation studio. And, you know, 2020, five years into the business, I was raising money in New York City. My girlfriend was there at the time and I'd found partners, I'd found investors. And I remember telling her at that time, hey, I'm I'll be back in a month. You know, I finally found investors, finally got this. Let's do it. This was February 2020. And I remember leaving New York City and like literally be back in a week. I was just packing up my things. And then the world kind of changed for us, right? And the partners kind of held off and the investors wanted to to wait a while. And the deal ended up kind of falling through at that point. And then a mutual friend of me and, and Ride Rides, um, one of the other co-founders, introduced us to each other. And he said, hey, you should you know, just help them out. And Ride was like, yeah, we need, we need some support you know, as an advisor. Can you tell us how to you know, recruit people and all that? And open at that stage was a breathwork pop-up that was um, happening in San Francisco, in the Bay Area. And they'd run about 80 to 90 pop-ups and, you know, it was going really well. It was the genesis of really what it is today. And I ended up meeting Ride and Peter, who were the other two co-founders. And for a period of weeks, we were just like really, you know, going ham on building this company together. And at one point he was like, hey, why don't you 
just join us. Why don't we just do this together? Like, you know, I'm in Australia, they're in the Bay Area. And I was like, there is no way I'm moving to San Francisco, first of all. It just sounds so boring. Like, <laughs> Big facts. Right. I'm like, <laughs> you said it. You said I'm it. Sorry to anyone. Big facts. And I'm like, just, there is no way. I'm going to New York City. That's where I am. And anyway, so um, we, we, A Space was acquired. I joined Open as a co-founder and I moved to San Francisco originally. And in 2020, it was boring because I couldn't go anywhere. So that's my facts. And then we ended up moving the whole company to LA and to, to Venice Beach. And it's just been really beautiful. You know, it's it's been really beautiful. And as you two would know, birthing anything into the world and seeing how people respond to it. And then organically seeing the community that kind of gathers around your message it's it's incredible, and um, we f we have the best team. And everyone says that I know, but we have such a, a talented, lucky team of teachers and and you know staff behind the scenes that we're mission driven. Like for us, it's all about presence and connection. And um, whenever we stray away from that, we feel like we're not on on alignment. And then we kind of regroup and we gather and we move towards this north star for us, which is presence and connection. With breathwork and meditation, for anyone that is looking to do it more consistently but feels like they keep kind of falling off and not really making it a consistent practice, what would you say to them? Well, I think the two are, are different. Breathwork is where we manipulate our, our breath in order to bring about a physiological, psychological shift in state, right? And for a lot of people, it's it's easier than meditation. You, you can use multiple different techniques to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate your nervous system. So it's a simple practice that we just need to be disciplined with and keep coming back to. Done over a period of time, there's a whole host of physical, mental, psychological benefits. Meditation is slightly different. Meditation is less quantifiable, the change that we see, but in my experience, more transformational because really here what we're doing is we're cultivating this skill of the mind to be able to be wise with our life, right? So the way we respond to challenges in our mind, the way we respond to our breath, the way we respond to a thought is often how we'll respond to that in life. Right, So developing spaciousness, developing wisdom and compassion in our meditation practice takes time, takes effort. Um, and a lot of people find a struggle within that because um, it's unpleasant and it takes time. And so they will fall off it. So uh, the way to, to develop and sustain a practice is to find a teacher, to find a particular practice, maybe even a particular set of teachings that they can actually go deep with. Instead of being surface level, they can actually go deep with a practice. And then it's just a matter of consistency. It's a matter of exercising this frontal cortex and the hippocampus, the parts of our brains that light up when we meditate. And that begins to transform us. And it's very subtle and it's less visible. So um, that's really the, the main difference. And you need a community and you need a practice. And hopefully open is those two things for mm -hmm. people. And the music and sound part of the experience, I'm super interested in. I've just been very fascinated by the healing power of sound. Can you just talk a little bit more about that and the intention behind the way in which you incorporate music? Yeah, so one of our advisors who I won't mention at, at this point is an ethnomusicologist and he's a professor in, in New York and he's, he's studied sound and he's one of the most brilliant men. He's one of our advisors actually. And very early on in, in the inception of Open, like speaking to him, he really spoke about the spirituality of sound. 
and how in everything in life there is this um, formula, there is this mathematical sequence that is present that has been shown throughout time all the way to the Greeks and beyond to represent you know, moments of God, moments of enlightenment, moments of awakening and insight. And this is present in, in sounds. And so for us, utilizing sound in a very intentional way was also another way to cut directly into the space of mindfulness. Um, the breath is another way we do that, right? And I think historically we've thought of mindfulness as being something really difficult and it's had a pretty bad marketing campaign for the last 2,500 years. But we know things like sounds, we know things like the breath can actually get us straight into this experience of oneness. And so for us, it's something that we integrate in every experience. Yeah, I love it so much. Yeah, the sound is key. Mm -hmm. It's we did um an episode on voice and the voice being like your gateway to intelligent infinity basically and your gateway mm. to your soul and how your voice has like a specific vibration. And mm. we also did one on sound, sound healing mm -hmm. with Kulit Kulit, I think was her name, but it's super powerful. And especially when you're using it for a meditation practice or breath work can really be transformational. Mm -hmm. And the music is super powerful. Last question for me, what are you excited about right now? Like what's making you really, really pumped about your life? As we were talking about before, my mom recently passed away. And it's the first time someone in my life has, has died. Someone close to me in my life has died. And so there was actually this moment I had with her right as she was kind of transitioning where it was me, my daughter, my brother, my sister-in-law and my nephew who's like five months old, super cute. And we were all surrounding her and there was a moment where something became very clear for me and it's that in the end, like there's nothing else matters apart from love. And I'm not like a cheesy person. I'm very cynical about these sorts of things. I was in New York for a very long time. But it became so clarifying to realize like as we approach death and if we are fortunate enough to be surrounded by people that we love, like that's enough at that moment. And mm -hmm. I think about how coming back to, to LA, things just seem clearer. And it seems like all I really need to cultivate is love, you know, in my life for myself and, and for others. And there's an excitement about how I'm showing up to the world now post, you know, my, my mother's passing and showing up with with this quality of, of love. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. This has been so nice, mm -hmm. so powerful. I'm excited for those listening to just dig into your work, to download the app, open. Where can people connect with you? <sighs> Do people use websites anymore? I don't know. Yeah. I was thinking about Heck that yeah. too. I was like, oh, it's like your Instagram's your website now. Yeah. I was thinking but about yes, that. But yes, I love a website. I do yeah. too. It's like, it's a necessity. Right. But it's like, almost like a calling card. Yeah. Where all you need is like, this is my name. This is where you can find me. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like I just I, can't remember the last time I've checked someone's website. I know. <laughs> like, you know Dude, I know. If I'm honest. Um, yeah, I've been mean, on Instagram and my website. It's Manoj Dias. So those are the two places. Beautiful. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you so much, Manoj. You can find Manoj on Instagram at M-A-N-O-J-D-I-A-S underscore or open on Instagram. It's O underscore P underscore E 
two underscores and it's open the app and you can use code almost 30 to get 30 days free. Yeah. Open-together.com slash almost 30 for 30 days free. And thank you so much to the additional sponsors for this show. We're bringing you brands that we love ourselves and have vetted for you. All discount information is in our show notes as well as on almost30.com slash partners. We will see you on the next episode. Be well. We love you. See you soon. See you soon.